It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Untold Story Podcast. I'm Martha McCallum. Thank you for joining us today. I am very pleased today to be joined by someone who has a, a better understanding of what is going on with the hostage situation in Gaza than most people, because Kevin Hermaning has lived it. Sergeant Kevin Hermaning served in the United States Marine Corps. He was serving at the Tehran Embassy back in 1979, when on November the 4th, he was taken hostage. He was with 66 others, some of whom were released. Some of them, you may have seen the movie Argo. Some of them got out right before the others were held for a very long time. And there was one release that happened during the period of 444 days. Kevin was there for the entire time. So he joins me now to discuss the hostage situation that's unfolding and we all hope that we are near to a deal that will start to see the release of some of these individuals. So, Kevin, welcome. It's great to have you and to talk Thank to you. you again. Thank you. A pleasure to join you, Martha. So, you know, I guess my first question for you, Kevin, when I do these untold story podcasts, I always want to peel back a little bit into someone's experience that maybe they haven't shared. So I, I'm curious about the the post-traumatic effects of being held as you were. And when you hear this story, when you learned that there were 240 hostages now being held by Hamas, how does that hit you? How, how do you process that as someone who knows what it's like firsthand? Well, I think I would begin by saying that the emotion that comes forward when we hear about this, and it's not just this one, there have been many hostage incidents over the last 40 years, is that there's a big difference between being one of those who are held, because we know about our experience. We know, in some cases, the terror and the sheer horror of what has happened to yourself or your colleagues. We know the circumstances surrounding our captivity whether we are in, as I was for 43 days in solitary confinement, others who were with me for up to 425 days in solitary, some of my colleagues beaten severely. We hope and pray that these hostages, first of all, are not held nearly as long, have not had some of the same very serious uh, conditions placed on them as some of my colleagues did. But then you have the families, the families who are hoping for and praying for um, an immediate release and also demanding answers from the governments. Uh, it's not just the Israeli government or the American government. There are hostages from dozens of countries who happened to be uh, citizens uh, from dozens of countries who happened to be um, in Israel uh, when Hamas on October 7th went in and put these atrocities on the country and the people and those who didn't survive, of course, um, and then to be scooped up and brought back and put into places where uh, they never should have been put. And I think about our situation, Martha, and uh, we found ourselves, I would say on average, for all 52 of us who were held the entirety of the 444 days 
in about a dozen places uh, over the course of the time. And it was always, in some cases, to keep ahead of what the Iranians and the, uh, the mullahs, um, the Islamic regime, believed was maybe pending action by the United States government or others to help uh, to, try, to try to secure our release. That's fascinating. So tell me, can you recount a time when you were suddenly moved from one place to another? And what, what was going through your mind? Yep. So there was one time uh, on Christmas Eve where I just happened to, well, of course, all of us were sick and tired of being there. And I emotionally was struggling with uh, having to spend a Christmas, having already spent Thanksgiving uh, in mm -hmm. captivity. Um, I was a young guy. I was 21 years old. I was um, I was 20 years old. Actually, I have my 21st yeah. birthday in captivity. But I was always and continued to be a very active person um, to be cramped into a small room with others or even in solitary confinement. I acted out. You know, I started cursing at the guards. I started throwing things at the guards and they came in and they put me into solitary confinement for a couple of hours. And I broke down and started, um, you know, crying out for some kind of release in the mm -hmm. sense that, please put me in a room with another American. It was very difficult, even as I said, for a few hours on Christmas Eve. And I found myself in a room with two others very quickly. And then there was a Christmas Eve service because a couple of American clergy had traveled to Iran for a Christmas Eve service. I didn't know that was going to happen. But then I spent the next several weeks with those same two Americans, which was a very um, helpful time for me early on in the crisis. And then later on, after a failed escape attempt of mine, I spent 43 days in a small uh, five foot by 10 foot room with only the box spring of the bed, no comfortable mattress, very uncomfortable for six weeks. And so at the end of that period, I was begging the guards to put me in a room with somebody else. And they did. They put me in a room with Alan Bolasinski, who worked for the Department of State. He was the regional security officer. And we we developed a strong bond. We became good friends over about a three-month or two-month period of time, I guess. And then we were all moved, first in small groups, and then placed into a location um, for each of us in a very disparate parts of the country. And that was after the U.S. had put forth the um, Operation Eagle Claw rescue mission and it failed tragically in the desert. The eight heroes uh, who lost their lives that night, um, they became kind of, for me, the symbol of uh, sacrifice and service. But in my case and a couple of others, we were moved about six hours away from Tehran when that happened into a small village that we later learned was only about 20 miles from the Afghani-Soviet Union uh, border or during the Cold War the Soviet Union before the country broke up. That was all intended to make it very difficult for the U.S. to mount a second rescue mission because others of my colleagues, they were moved down to small isolated villages near the Persian Gulf, you know, 800 miles away from Tehran. Um, others were moved up near the Iraqi and Turkish borders. So there was virtually no opportunity after that first rescue mission for the U.S. to successfully mount another mission where they could have reached all of us. What do you remember about the day that your mother came to visit? Yes. So um, that event actually occurred while I was in solitary confinement after that failed escape attempt. And they came into my room and they, um, 
they told me that they were moving me to another location and uh, they put me into this room, sat me down and I was looking around. There were dozens of Iranians in the, uh, in the room. There was, uh, I was on a comfortable sofa, a nice fancy dining table in front of me with a huge planter, uh, a plant in front of it, flowers. And I looked at the flowers and I noticed there were a number of listening devices, little m- microphones um, inside of that uh, floral arrangement. And the next thing I know, there's a commotion in the back of the room and the door opens <clears throat> and in walks my mom. And um, it was very surreal. I uh, imagine I it was unbelievable. Of course, I stood up and she came running over and almost collapsed into my arms, crying. Um, I held her. I had tears coming down my cheeks, of course. But uh, we then sat down. The Iranians made us sit down. They told us we didn't have much time. And for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, um, she shared with me stories of what was going on with our family back in Wisconsin what was going on with the local sports teams. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm being tolerant of her stories, but they had obviously coached her and told her that she was not allowed to share anything about what the Carter administration was doing to try to secure our release. No conversation about our situation. I was limited to what I could tell her because the guard said that I should only talk about my own self but nothing about any roommates I had or where I was. And so I was limited to only telling her that I'm physically okay. I'm as mentally strong as I can be. And I felt I was pretty strong at that time and actually for the duration. But there were always and are always times where it's a little more difficult, right? Yeah. You don't know what's going on to get you out. For a while there, actually, until my mom told me that it wasn't the case, we thought we were for, we were forgotten. Yeah. We thought that uh, um, we didn't know about the yellow ribbons. We yeah. didn't know there was an Iran hostage group uh, formed uh, by some of the family leaders, some family members of some of the senior diplomats and senior military personnel. In the case of the Marines, uh, we were all 20-something years old, and our families had no exposure to anything, the media or um, government government leadership. And so there were big changes for our families. But um, as soon as my mom's visit started, for me, it ended because after 20 minutes or so, they said it's time to go. And she didn't want to go. She was holding on to my arm mm-hmm. and they actually pulled her hands off of my wrist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The next thing you know, she's out of the room. And then my mind started reeling, you know, first of all, why was she here? Um, how did she get in? And I was then worried about how she was going to get out. Yes, of course. Of course, much later, much later after we got out, I learned kind of the rest of the story that there were about a dozen family members or family members of about a dozen of my colleagues who were trying to get into Iran at the exact same time. And um, they couldn't get a visa in Paris or in uh, Switzerland. That's where they traveled, like my mom did, to try to get their visas. And she got hers. It was a very interesting time. Because uh, I was then put into that back into that room with Mr. Golosinski and Alan and I talked about uh, the propaganda machine that the Iranians were really putting forth. They were really good at it. They were working hard to try to convince my mom that uh, they were humanitarian, that we were being treated very well and that she didn't have anything to worry about. And then to go back and communicate that message to all of America. Well, they just told her what she wanted to hear. 
but she didn't have any of it by the time she got back. For me, she did what any mom wanted to do. She wasn't necessarily more courageous than any others. She was just lucky to be able to get through. And some people were critical of her decision to violate President Carter's travel ban, which she put in place, by the way, on the day that she was leaving to come. Uh, mm. Well, when she left Europe. And so um, she was already en route. And a lot of people try to make uh, uh, a story out of anything. But for her, it was the love of a mother for uh, a son. And for me, I just was uh, I'm proud of what she did. Um, I don't think it was wise counsel. But uh, nonetheless, uh, she had the love of a mother wanting to do that. Yeah, I just think that is such an incredible story. I have two boys in their 20s right now, and I I just cannot imagine how relieved she was to see you and how hard it must have been for her to leave without you. Um, But I just think it's an extraordinary story. You know, I wonder what goes through your mind when you're released. What was happening? And did you have any guards that you became friendly with or anyone who shared a little bit extra with you? Well, as far as being released is concerned, you can imagine when I went back into the room after being with my mom for about 20 some minutes, uh, my thoughts were, and our conversation was, I certainly hope that they're not going to, they, the Iranians are not going to put me in a position of uh, maybe having to go home early while everyone else stayed behind. And there was that serious conversation that I'm not leaving until everyone's leaving. And um, uh, it was. You're a young man. You want to get out of there. Some people have already been released, but you were committed. You weren't going to leave without the rest of them. No. And we we were developing that kind of a camaraderie with the few hostage colleagues we had as the Iranians played chess pieces to me and moved us around from rooms to room. Over the course of time, we spent six months in a maximum security prison uh, right in downtown Tehran. Um, They then right before about 30 days, less than 30 days before we were released, they moved us into a much better uh, location, into fancy uh, villas and uh, in some cases, hotel rooms. We didn't know exactly why, but we started to imagine having spent two Thanksgivings, two Christmases, two New Year's Days, and then the upcoming inaugural of President Reagan, that maybe that's the day that the Iranians would target to free us. We didn't know about all the negotiations going on. We didn't know that the country of Algiers was instrumental in being the intermediary between the two countries of Iran and the United States. But we knew the Iranians were under a lot of pressure. The Shah of Iran had died about uh, eight months into the hostage crisis, which was really their primary demand. They wanted him to go back to Iran, brought back to Iran by the United States government to put him on trial for his uh, 26 years of uh, leaving the country and what they described as uh, taking advantage of and stealing the wealth of the country. No doubt the Shah of Iran was a dictator, uh, but the Iranian leaders now are not anything other than that and haven't been for 44 years now. So from my perspective, when they came into our room on January 19 of 1981, the day before the inauguration, and said, gather your things together, you're going home. We were very guarded because we had been encouraged a lot. Uh, They played that emotional game with us and put us on this emotional roller coaster. Negotiations are looking really good. It looks like you're going to be out of here real soon. That happened about seven or eight times during the crisis. Plus, we had our natural mental um, thoughts, maybe Easter, maybe uh, Independence Day, 
Not that we should have thought they would observe our Independence Day, July 4th, but nonetheless, we had these artificial goals as well, maybe before our birthdays, right? I think about that day, January 19th, and you're answering your question. All we had were a few items that we packed into a little box. Um, I had made as best as I could a diary. I had made out of four three by five index cards, a little deck of playing cards. Each of those cards was less than one inch in length, but I was able to play cards with myself. And um, I had received through um, a miracle, truly a miracle, a Bible that um, as the Iranians pushed the cart down the hallway and they stopped in front of my room and said I could take a couple of books off the shelf. I took a book off the top shelf and a book off the bottom shelf. And it was dark. It was two o'clock in the morning. I couldn't really see. I grabbed these two books. One of them was a 1250 page version of Tolstoy's War and Peace. Not the best book to read in a situation like that. But then the other book was a book sent over by a a woman from California. It's all it said. Your friend from California praying for you on the inside cover of a Bible. And I read that Bible four times from cover to cover in solitary confinement. And um, it is a big part of what kept me going. And um, I stuffed that into the box along with a pair of socks and an extra pair of undershorts. And I found myself still there the next morning, depressed, because why would they play that mind game with us? And of course, thinking about the time zone change between Washington, D.C. and um, Tehran, where we were kept at that moment, um, having all been brought back to the city of Tehran, it seemed apparent something was going to happen. And as fast as you can imagine, they came in one day, that that same day, January 20th, at around 8 p.m., which would have been around noon in Washington, D.C. And as the president-elect was raising his right hand, putting his left hand on the Bible, taking the oath of office, we were taken out of those rooms, put onto a bus, put onto an airplane, having run a gauntlet from the bus to the airplane steps, I launched myself up onto that plane in two or three steps. This is before the sky bridges of today. And um, as each of us came through the bulkhead of that plane, we saw others and we hugged one another. We were crying. We were high-fiving. Personally, I knew it was time to come home when I got on that plane and saw those four beautiful stewardesses. For me, it was time to come back to the U.S. The Untold Story continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. When you felt the wheels leave the runway and you cleared, did they announce that you had cleared Iran airspace? Uh, They did. Um, Yeah. But there were some unnerving moments along the way because we were flanked on both sides by Iranian jet fighters. And there was a lot of talk in our mind that maybe we're not actually getting out of here. They could call it an accident. But when we cleared Iranian airspace and flew over Turkey, then on to Greece, where we landed to refuel, and then on to Algiers, Algeria, where we got on to U.S. Air Force um, hospital planes. We were flown up to Wiesbaden, Germany, each step of that trip gave us a little bit more of a smile. This is real. After 14 and a half months, we're finally getting out of here. Now we're out of the country. Now we're landing. How long till we can call our families and how long until we can actually step on American soil? And Mm -hmm. at Stewart Air Base, just north of New York City, near West Point, 
uh, there is a little gold star embedded in the tarmac uh, where that's where those stairwell came down from that plane after we landed it in the United States. And we were meeting our families at West Point, but um, I got down on my hands and knees and kissed the concrete. Ten years later or so, they put a little bronze star there in the ground or gold star in the ground. And um, I was back there 30 years later in 2011 and drove out and was able to see that along with 16 of my colleagues and a real um, emotional time, just even thinking back to those days from uh, 1981 when we finally became free. And so I think about these hostages today and the feelings of emotion and joy and right now fear, fear on the family's parts, fear on the parts of those who are in captivity, but a different type of fear day by day, minute by minute, hoping that um, it's going to come to an end. And we hope even, you know, that we're in the midst of that uh, final negotiation. You know, though, a negotiation of any type requires two honest brokers. And along the way, at least in our situation, the Iranians were not honest brokers. I think as I've watched the news these last several weeks, as the negotiations have begun to ramp up, I don't think all along the way Hamas and their leadership uh, have exactly been honest brokers. The Israelis and the government, they have the responsibility and the right to protect themselves as a nation and their citizens. It's the number one fundamental goal and job of any government is the safety and security of its citizens. And so, you know, trying to put the interests of a handful of people over the interests of a whole country is a very difficult, uh, gut-wrenching decision that government leaders have to take. Absolutely. So what do you remember about what was the best thing about getting home? I think about at least one event. Uh, When I was in Germany, I called back to my family. I spoke to my mom. All of the local media reporters were in my, my mom's living room at the time. And I am in my dad's living room across the city. And my mom, of course, as any mom would want to do, is ask, what is the first meal that she could make when I get back? And I told her, well, I would really enjoy a great plate of uh, of pork chops. And uh, <laughs> there it was on the front page of the Milwaukee newspapers that Kevin Germany's first meal in freedom, anyway, would be pork chops. And the Iowa the Iowa Pork Producers Association sent a 100-pound box of frozen oh. pork chops to my home. And after enjoying pork chops for two or three days, we donated the rest to the uh, local veterans hospital. That was an interesting thing that happened. And uh, the other thing that I would maybe point out is I was still in the Marine Corps at the time. My tour of duty had not yet ended like some of my colleagues and the Iranians. This will bring full circle the conversation, how it began with you today, Martha, is that uh, the United States Marine Corps I don't know if it was by design, by fate, or by God's design, which of course I believe is really the case. They put me on the road to speak in the state's high schools. And I spoke in front of 432 out of Wisconsin's 435 high schools in a matter of about four and a half months. And for me, talking about my experience, talking about the heroes who lost their lives, talking about the, the, the incredible um, ability of some of my colleagues to withstand some horrible, horrible experiences and still come back as a whole person, struggling in some cases, but working through it. For me, that became a catharsis. It helped get all of the horrible things out of my system and helped me to go on with my life and to go to college, uh, get married, start a family who have two daughters, now a grandson, uh, get my degree, go on and 
start a business and get involved in my community and build a life, a life of amazingness. But a big part of it is that I didn't keep that experience bottled up inside and let it eat away at me. I'm very involved in our local honor flight program, sending our veterans to DC to view their monuments. A lot of these folks are still struggling from Korea and uh, Vietnam and now some of the new uh, newer veterans getting involved in the honor flight program uh, from the Gulf War and uh, the war on terror. I know a lot of folks, a lot of guys, some women who have kept their experience bottled up inside and it's continued to eat away at them. And it's not about talking about themselves. It's not. I mean, you heard me talk mostly about what experiences my colleagues have and uh, what it was like for some of them. Healing comes in different ways for each person. And I was fortunate that I was so young. I had my 21st birthday in captivity. And so I think it's also easier to be more resilient when you are younger. I didn't have a wife and children to worry about back home, but um, I still cared about my family. I still wanted to build a life and, and get back to living as a free person. And I really concluded that despite all of the challenges that our country has and um, have then, has now, they've just changed a little bit. Um, I've been to 55 countries, Martha, over the last uh, 40 some years um, since during, uh, during and since the Marine Corps. And every time I come back to the United States, I'm convinced more and more uh, that this nation, these United States of America are still the greatest place on earth. And it's because of the people who prayed for me, the people who didn't forget me, the people who sent cards saying they were listening or that they were caring for me while I was in captivity. And then all of the welcome home that we received was just amazing. Well, Kevin, it's great to talk to you and hear your story mm -hmm. and this Thanksgiving week, we thank you for your service and your resilience in captivity and your optimism and your faith and for sharing all those stories because they are so meaningful with so many other people since your experience. Um, I'm grateful for your time today. And I, I hope that these hostages in Israel and those who are Americans as well will have a coming home experience that they can move on from eventually. And we all hope and pray for their release as we sit down with our families uh, and celebrate this Thanksgiving. So Kevin Hermaning, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I hope we get some good news soon on these hostages and that you and I can speak again. But in the meantime, Happy Thanksgiving to you and to your family. I hope it's a good one for all of you. Thank you, Martha. Thanks for the opportunity to join your listeners and viewers today. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.